think we're ready. Are you ready? <laughs> okay. I'm almost ready. <laughs> Good. Great. Welcome everybody to the final session of the Seven Seas of History. I'd like to say I've enjoyed this uh, series and I hope that it has been edifying to you. We're on now on the seventh sea for the third time. This is part three. We had to do three sessions on uh, the Seventh Sea Consummation because it is so significant and there's so much material to cover. You've seen this. <clears throat> we're to the point now in the redemptive plan of God where we're really closing in on the last part of God's redemptive plan. And uh, you've seen this before. God will put an end to evil, to sin, actually, at the final judgment. But there's more than just judgment coming at the end. I was reflecting on this graphic. <clears throat> uh, really, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I was reflecting on this graphic, and it, it caused me to think about something. This is kind of an analogy to COVID, the COVID pandemic, in a way. Um, the COVID pandemic is responsible for, um, I mean, it could be represented by this scenario too, in a way. Uh, the world uh, quickly responded after about 18 months ago when the first indications that we were in a pandemic came out and different countries, including ours, developed a plan of action that included vaccines, uh, safe distancing procedures, uh, clean habits. The plan was successful roughly I would say, over time, and uh, we can begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel and the uh, recovery across the world from this pandemic. But currently, as of today, I looked up the statistics, 3.2 million people have died from COVID worldwide. Um, no matter how you cut it, that's a pretty small percentage. I mean, there are 7.7 .7 billion people in the world um, but um, sin, of course, is a much more serious problem because we wouldn't even be talking about COVID deaths if it weren't for sin because sin is what brought death into the world in the first place. So COVID is, uh, is a serious problem, don't get me wrong, but people who die from COVID are dying prematurely because eventually they too would, would die of something Whereas God has a plan to remove sin and its effects, including death. The Bible says the last enemy to be conquered will be death. The creation that God put in place in Genesis 1 and 2 was perfect. It did, there was no death. No death in the first two chapters of Genesis. We zoom forward to the end. Revelation 21 and 22, those last two chapters, we see that death has been removed. The death is it's it's gone, but in between is a is a legacy of terrible carnage, uh, which the world has suffered for thousands of years. Sin is a hundred percent lethal. It's not a tiny percentage; it's one hundred percent, and it produces heinous side effects uh, as well as COVID did. But the side the side effects are so up close and personal that it um, it defies description. And sadly, you and I, everyone who is alive, is a spreader of sin. Before we came to Christ, especially, we didn't really think we had a sin problem. And uh, the world out there at large thinks that they're okay. But uh, 
it is, it is the, cent the central biggest problem of the human race. Um, God has devised a remedy for sin, which like the pandemic, it requires personal action. There is a remedy for, sin, for, for death, for sin and death, and that is uh, re repentance. Repentance and faith in Christ. With the pandemic, it's something simple like getting a vaccine, but again, it's, uh, it delays the inevitable, which is death. God's solution is permanent. He has created, we'll see this today, a new heaven and a new earth, or he is creating it. And also, there will be a lake of fire. We talked about that last time. So this separation involves eternal separation. And the, uh, the residence of the two uh, is, seen, is seen here. And we're using the premillennial timeline because it seems to fit the flow of Scripture. And, and it also seems to fit the context better than any other model. But we understand we live in the last days in the church age between Christ's first coming and his second coming. But his second coming involves, first of all, the rapture of the church, which we talked about. Uh, previously, that period of great tribulation in the world, which is about seven years long, followed by the second coming of Christ, and the millennium, the return of the saints with Christ to rule and reign for a thousand years on the earth, followed by, believe it or not, <laughs> a revolution, um, also the great white throne judgment, the judgment of all the unbelievers, all the wicked from all time. And then the entry into the eternal reign of Christ, which is called the, the eternal state. The eternal state then is much more than a dispensation. Some people call it a dispensation, but it, since it's eternal, it really deserves a, a little bit more embellishment because uh, of the fact that it's uh, the other dispensations come and go. They're succeeded by a different dispensation. We talked about Satan's final revolt that comes at the end of the, uh, the millennium. You wouldn't think that there would be any interest in a revolt. But we just touched on this last time, and I wanted to bring to your attention what MacArthur and Mayhew have written about this, why, why this would happen. After a, a thousand years of virtual virtual living in virtually a perfect world under ideal conditions, why there would be any interest in a rebellion. <clears throat> but um, they write, the nucleus of, for this rebellion comes from those born during the millennial kingdom who did not trust Christ as their savior. When given the opportunity to join forces with the recently released Satan, they gladly do so. While the participants are expecting war, the result is more like an execution as they are immediately vanquished. And then I've written my own thoughts below that. Today, sin and temptation are, are they're manifested everywhere in the world, the flesh, and the devil, okay? It's the kind of world we live in. But during the millennium, the world is virtually perfect. It's as close to perfect as you can really think about. The devil is being confined to the abyss during the entire thousand years, so the only sinful only the sinful flesh remains during the millennium. And yet this proves that once again, man's primary problem is his own wicked heart, the sin nature. We're often quick to say, 
to another person, well, you're your own worst enemy. We need to think about that in the context of ourselves, that this sin nature, which God has promised us to, he's, he's going to refine us to the point that we will be glorified without that nature. And this is the work that we talked about last time. Here's a problem, I think, is why, one of the reasons we might think of as to why this happens. Uh, it's happened before. I think it's happened in every dispensation. You start out with believing parents, and uh, they don't really teach their children properly. And so those children may come to Christ. They may have weak faith. Some of them won't have faith at all, but some of them uh, many times have a weak faith, which then they just really don't pass on to their children. So you wind up with grandchildren who are unbelievers. This happened in the first dispensation, that antediluvian period between Adam and Noah. And at the end of, at the end of that time, before the flood, it's interesting what God t told Noah in Genesis 7, verse 1. You and, your, you and all your household alone I have seen to be righteous in this time. That is astounding. Thinking that there could have been maybe a billion people alive in the world at that time, that somehow these parents who, you know, I hate to say it, but you know, we can all have our regrets about the way we were, the way we parented, but it involves not just parenting, it involves our witness too, and warning the world of the uh, things to come. It probably happened there, it probably happened before Babel, it probably happened before Abraham. <clears throat> God called out Abraham from a, an obscure place and brought him into fellowship and into a covenant in order to preserve the plan of salvation and the gospel message and the plan of redemption. And then uh, as it played out in Jewish life, the Jewish exile by that time, 586 BC, when they were taken away into exile because of their punishment and sinful behavior and disobedience the same type of trend, no doubt, took place where uh, God's, God's message, God's grace, the message of salvation through faith was not being proclaimed. And since Jesus compared his second coming to the days of Noah, you see this in Matthew 24 and Luke 17, he said that those days are going to be like the days of Noah. Guess what? Maybe we have the same problem in this terminal generation prior to the second coming. It's something to ponder. We talked about the great white throne judgment, that sad, sad event where people who have not come to faith, who, who are unbelievers from all generations, are judged and uh, they wind up being taken, thrown into the lake of fire. It says, this is the second death, the lake of fire. We talked about that last time. And then, finally, we have the revelation of the new heavens and the new earth. It started in, uh, well, Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. But prior to that, it's mentioned by Isaiah twice in his uh, book, and uh, set around 700 B.C., give or take. Um, 
He writes this, For behold, I create. And there's our word again. It's the same word in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the heavens and the earth and he, the, the word create, it's the Hebrew word bara. And when it's used in this particular form, it always uh, means something new and different uh, performed only by God. It's always used only of God. I, um, I looked this, researched this word because it's a participle and it's, it's used here without a, an indication. There's no indication of time. It says, I create. Um, in the theological word book of the Old Testament. So this is grammar, it's not a commentary. It says that this, this word is always a, and only of God's activity and describes creation by divine fiat. It carries the concept of initiating something new and different, especially in relation to this particular verse. The verb doesn't tell us when it occurs, past, present, or future, only that it is the work of God. So it's, it's worded this, translated this way, I create. When it comes to be, it's, it's my creation. Then in the next chapter, Isaiah repeats himself a little bit, but he uses that other word, make. Remember that word, make? We talked about uh, the formation of when God made Adam. It involved uh, being hands-on, forming him from the dust. We see God as a blue-collar worker. We see God as working, giving dignity to the idea of work. And uh, then it's not mentioned again until A.D. 67 when Peter was writing his epistle, <clears throat> 2 Peter 3. You remember Peter, the impulsive uh, fisherman who always you know, expressed himself before thinking, evidently had been reading his, his Old Testament scriptures. And he says this, according to his promise... That, he must be referring to Isaiah here. According to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's the present tense. We're looking for it, looking forward to it, anticipating, expecting. You know, I'm, I'm sure Peter was near the end of his, in fact, he was near the end of his life, but he, it wasn't necessarily, I'm going to die and go to heaven. I'm Looking forward to the new, the new heavens and the new earth is what he's saying here. And then about 90 A.D. or a little after, we see John the Apostle writing at the end of Revelation where God gave him a vision, and maybe it was carrying him forward in time. Who knows, one or the other. But somehow he was transported into a place where he could see this heaven and new earth. He said, then I saw, and he's using the past tense. I saw it. I witnessed it. Folks, this is, this is the thing faith is made of. When you see revelation like this in the scripture, then what, how do we react to that? We're seeing plenty of testimony to the fact that this really is occurring, and it's, um, it's something that should convict all of us. I um, was curious, too, when that, what happens to this world? We see a new heavens and a new earth. What's going to happen to this heaven, this heaven and earth? Is it uh, going to be annihilated and replaced with something else? Or exactly what will occur here? So let's look into this. Revelation 21, verse 1 says, <clears throat> the, first, the first heaven and earth passed away. 
Does that mean they were just uh, blown up, annihilated, destroyed? Uh, Peter talks about how this happens in his epistle in verse 3, verse 7, 2 Peter 3, 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being, um, are being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. That, that word is apaleia. It means destruction, ruin, or loss. Destruction, ruin, or loss. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, annihilation. In verse 10 through verse 12, he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away. That word means to perish or disappear with a roar, the rushing sound or noise, uh, maybe violent movement, and the elements will be destroyed. That word is the Greek word luo. It means loosed up, freed up, uh, released. It's, it's like the unbinding of the molecules, if you will. Uh, the, they'll be unbound. With intense heat, the earth and its works will be burned up. That means they'll become really hot. <clears throat> Since all these things are to be destroyed, there's that word loosed up, freed up, unbound, set free in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed? There it is again, loosed up, uh, loosed, unbound, freed up. Um, by burning with heat, fire, and the elements, the stoichia, the fundamental building blocks of matter. Uh, they probably didn't understand had hydrogen and oxygen and all these atoms at that time, but they knew that there were fundamental building blocks of matter that they'll somehow liquefy with intense heat, become extremely hot, be consumed. So there you have it. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. They'll, they'll pass away, but not my words. That means to disappear. Doesn't mean necessarily to be annihilated. Romans 8, 21, the creation itself will also be set free, unbound, delivered, released, set free, from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. By the way, that's used, that word is used in John 8, 36, where he said this, if the, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Well, if the Son sets you free, you're not destroyed, you know. Maybe destruction is not the right way to think about these uh, words. And... Um, Matthew 28, Jesus said, Truly you have followed me in the regeneration. Well, that's, that's the word for born again. That, you could say that's the word born againness in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You'll sit on 12, uh, on 12, uh, 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. So Peter foretold the restoration of all things, an action of restoring to its former or good state. These passages seem to portray, again, I'm going back to MacArthur and Mayhew, <clears throat> they seem to portray the creation as anticipating glorification, not annihilation, which is kind of the opposite idea in a way. It doesn't mean this total destruction or annihilation, but, but glorification. 
You know, the, we talked about last time the judgment seat of Christ, which, which we call the Bema, where uh, this will happen. This is, our, this is not our judgment. Our judgment took place at the cross. But our evaluation with Christ will take place. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.13, where it says, Each man's work will become evident. The day will show it. It's to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If a man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. Okay, a reward. Even though you've gone through fire, if, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Even though fire is destructive, the person is spared. This also describes glorification, doesn't it? Not, not annihilation. So it's, it's something to, I think it's an important point that <clears throat> deserves our consideration. And I've written this, another way we might anticipate an answer to the question has to do with theology, the character of God. God saves, God redeems, God judges, God condemns, he purges, he destroys, but he does not ultimately annihilate anything or anyone. There, uh, there seems to be no passage in Scripture where annihilation can really be proved. So, I'll leave that for you to ponder. There's no place for sin in this new heavens and new earth. No lingering effects in Revelation 21. You might want to have your Bibles open to Revelation 21 because we'll be referring to it quite a bit now. Uh, verse 4 he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death, no longer any mourning, crying, pain. The first things have passed away. All that's gone. No effects of sin. There will be no sinful people. Uh, nothing unclean. Nothing unclean, and uh, no one who practices abomination lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, only those who are who are saved. There's an outright prohibition <clears throat> on all sin as well. Revelation 21.8 says, but for the, the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And these other passages basically say the same thing. There is a place for them, but it doesn't reside in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, into the new Jerusalem. But those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And now we come to the new Jerusalem. And the first thing that really grabs you is the size of this thing. It's huge. Um, the dimensions in chapter 21, verse 16. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. Whoa, 1,500 mile city? <laughs> Um, I laid that over the United States. Look at that. 
Look at that. Of course, we don't know how big the earth and heavens is. The new Jerusalem is going to be part of this new heaven and earth, so we don't really know. Uh, we don't understand the cosmology of, of it. So maybe it would make sense if we did, but that's the missing piece in here. So the cosmology of the new heavens and the earth is not really described uh, for us. But um, by the way, this new heaven and new earth, you know, most of our heavens, the universe is uninhabitable. And maybe that's a result of the fall, but we might think that and ponder this, that perhaps the new heavens and the new earth will be all habitable, all for habitation. Uh, think about that in the size of the universe. Look, look at this, <clears throat> in the time of Jesus. It was just a small, Jerusalem was a very small city. I don't know how many people lived there, but this is uh, an artist's rendering of about the size of it. What's interesting about it is that it's today is the most hotly contested real estate, just 35 acres of property. It's the most hotly contested piece of real estate in the whole world. And uh, that's probably because there is, in fact, even today, all-out opposition to God's plan. Um, I, by the way, I, I took this picture when I was on a tour. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, it is well worth it. But there's a foundation stone on the uh, wall that's, that's, that surrounds the temple, and they have exposed the foundation stone, which is huge. It's 45 feet long by 10 feet high, 15 feet deep, weighs about 570 tons. It's the largest, <coughs> limestone, the largest limestone used in the Great Pyramids was only 15 tons, which we think of as a wonder of the world, but how in the world did they move this stone? and it's one piece, and it sits about 300 feet from the Holy of Holies. By the way, this stone is directly under the western wall uh, where it's the women's section, uh, where the women pray. And um, so it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating sight to see, but we're gonna get into the features of the New Jerusalem. We're gonna see it's a lot bigger. <laughs> a whole lot bigger, the dimensions. Revelation 21, 16, the city's laid out as a square, its length, width, and great, uh, great as its width, I, I read that earlier. Um, we're not told how many levels exist. We, there might be places to move about and everything on different levels and probably would be. We can come and go according to uh, verses 26 and Chapter 22, verse 14. Therefore, uh, there could be agriculture, a lot of agriculture and activity outside the city. Uh, many things going on on the earth outside of the New Jerusalem. We, la we like to ask today, what makes city life difficult? It's primarily crime and transportation, right? I mean, we live in L.A., we know about that. But, but maybe those things will be resolved. And certainly, certainly crime will. There's not going to be any crime and um, so, you know, it could be a wonderful place to be. The gates, um, uh, let me see here, the foundations. 
the foundations are 12 stones, 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. And uh, verse 17 and 20 of chapter 21 talk, talk about the uh, material. Uh, well, the wall is about 200 feet high that circulates the entire city. And then the material <clears throat> of the wall was jasper. The city is pure gold like clean glass, but the foundation stones were adorned with every kind of precious stone, jasper, sapphire, <clears throat> chalcedony, etc. And it's got a list of 12 of those. What's interesting is that eight of those 12 were, were stones that the chief priest carried around in his ephod. So, <clears throat> um, I don't know if that's significant, but Hebrews tells us that by faith Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. So Abraham lived in tents, as well as his son and grandson, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for a city which has foundations, foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So apparently Abraham was looking for this city too. The gates in verses 12 and 13, it had a great high wall, 12 gates, and the, at the gates, 12 angels. So there's an angel stationed at each gate, and the names were written on them, the, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, <clears throat> three on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. 12 gates were 12 pearls, it says in verse 21. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, a single pearl. And it says in verse 25 that the gates will never be closed. So here's a gate that'll never, that'll never be closed. Well, in a place like this, where God is, where we've been glorified, where God is in charge, there's really no need for that. Um, there's really no need to close the gates. Plus, there will be so many people coming and going and bringing honor and glory through them into the city, it says in verses 25 and 6. There'll be a stream of people coming and going all the time. So, <clears throat> the single pearl, Alcorn writes this in his book on heaven, because the pearl is formed through the oyster's pain, the pearl may symbolize Christ's suffering on our behalf as well as the eternal beauty that can come from our temporary suffering. It may be a reminder of the suffering of Christ. That's how the pearl is created. Um, I was thinking about this too. The foundation stones are named after the 12 apostles and the gates after the 12 tribes of Israel, but it just seems intuitively, intuitive to me that it should be the other way around because the 12 tribes came much earlier than the apostles. Uh, but since the foundation is laid first, um, it couldn't have begun. It couldn't have begun until Jesus' ascension to heaven. And therefore, I would conclude that Jesus went to heaven and began work on the New Jerusalem. And that the foundations were named after his apostles. Uh, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and so forth, those guys. Um, everything prior to him, prior to Christ, is but a type, isn't it? We have the types in the Old Testament, but Christ is the final revelation of everything. He's the final fulfillment 
of everything, and so it seems fitting that he, also being the chief cornerstone, would name the foundations after his apostles. The street, well, it's made out of gold too. The city and the street are made out of gold. You know, people kill and murder and they do all kinds of things for a few ounces of gold and yet here we have this kind of beautiful gold in abundance. It uh, really makes quite a statement, does it not? The function, uh, it is the tabernacle of God, it says in 21.3, Revelation 21 verse 3, uh, he will dwell among men and uh, they shall be his people and God himself will be among them, among them. John 14, 2 and 3, Jesus said this, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. My Father's house, that's a house. Dwelling places is a different word. It means a place to abide, a place to live, to hang your hat, to stay, to live. The abode, it's your legal address. If I were to ask you, I would ask you that word, use that word. What's your street address? That's, that would be you. You would have a place. You would have your own place in this, in this house. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. That's the word for habita uh, habitation, a place to uh, inhabited space, maybe more than just a cot. <laughs> it's probably got a lot more to it and maybe some land, who knows? I have no idea what it's like, but it's a habitation. And if I go to prepare this place, I'll come again and, re and uh, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Christ himself is in this place. This is the place to be. And um, animals, I know everybody is sitting there with bated breath. <clears throat> this is your big concern, right? Well, my little, my little puppy dog, my <laughs> little kitten, <laughs> my little pet. Uh, some, some theologians believe there will, and really I think the better question is, since this is part of the new heavens and the new earth, uh, the real question is, since there are animals on the earth, won't there be animals in the new earth? Right? And if there are, that kind of answers the question. Um, remember, too, the charter of the human race in Genesis 1? We talked about that when we... When we went through that, uh, God commanded Adam, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and, so, and rule over the animals. Well, that's never been commanded. It's never commanded. It's never been changed. It's never been revoked. So uh, very possibly uh, we're going to have animals, I would think. Light, <clears throat> there will no longer be any night. This is in chapter 22 now. They'll not have need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Um, in John 8, 12, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not work, walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And uh, John the Baptist said this about Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So... The mystery of light is something that is quite interesting, and if you ever know or have a chance to talk to a theoretical physicist about light, it, it's enough to make your head spin. And uh, we know this, that light can be modeled as a wave or as a particle traveling through space. 
But uh, nobody really quite understands light and why it travels at the speed that it does. And uh, it was studied exhaustively by uh, Isaac Newton, the gifted uh, physicist and theologian, and he couldn't come up with a, a full explanation. This is something I don't know that we, if the way, only way I can view this is that maybe we'll have spiritual vision that will, if God walked into a dark room, he wouldn't need a flashlight, right? <laughs> he knows his way around. Somehow God has this vision, and maybe that's the type of vision it will be, but it will be sufficient. Um, also, Alcorn states in his book on heaven, by the way, I, I really recommend that book to you um, as well. Like the earth, the sun and the moon will probably continue into eternity, but no verse says they'll cease to exist, or they'll, only that they'll no longer be needed. So it could be that... Uh, these celestial bodies will not really be needed. But what's the purpose of the tree of life? <clears throat> That's a real mystery, isn't it? We saw this this in the tree of life in the first two chapters of Genesis, and now in the last two chapters of the Bible, it comes back. But in after the sin of Adam, remember what God said. This is the discussion that took place among the Trinity. The Lord God said, Behold, a man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. Now he might stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Even in his sinful condition, if he ate from the tree of life. And so they had to cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. Here it comes back, Genesis or Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. He showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming out of the throne of God and the Lamb, the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, having 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The healing of the nations. Well, wait a minute. I thought we already read that there will no longer be any death. Right? Why do we need healing? Um, the tree of life is for the healing of the nations. But one of the range of meanings of that word, it could be looked at as our well-being. Our well-being will be sustained and renewed as we depend on God and draw on his provision. Uh, maybe this will be a little clearer as we come <clears throat> to the last slide in our presentation here. We'll have everlasting intimacy with God, and this is... This is the other great truth. I heard a Lord, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They will be his people, and God himself will be among them. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha Omega, the beginning, the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who comes, overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. What a great promise. Verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 22. I saw no temple in it, in the New Jerusalem, for the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Wasn't the temple, anyway, a place where you could come to approach God? Or you could, it was a means of access to God? Here, God is going to be among his people. So there's no need for a temple. 
Luke 12, 32, Do not be afraid, little flock. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. There's going to be a sense of mutual ownership here among God and His children. The place that this is, this is really ours. This is, it, it's our place too. And um, the last difficult question is, will we have eternity future? Or in other words, will it just, we just go back into eternity and spend eternity? Or will it be time? Will it just be time marching on? And uh, <clears throat> first of all, let's, let's think about that time didn't exist prior to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, we believe that, you know, since light was created and so forth, that time and light seem to go together, the equations of continuity. Um, I know they're just, uh, they're man-made, but as best we understand that time, uh, we're bound to time in this world. Um, without time, of course, we can't envision uh, there being even light. Um, <clears throat> Jesus said this, <clears throat> um, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And the keys of the death in Hades, Revelation 1.18, I, I am alive forevermore. The Greek phrase reads this, into the ages of the ages. It's actually a phrase. It's not a word, it's a phrase. Into the ages of the ages. Possible reference to time. And Revelation 22.5 says the same phrase, that the saints will reign forever and ever. Into the ages of the ages. Into the ages of the ages. So, apparently... Time will, will continue. Um, it seems that God existed in a timeless state we call eternity past until the day of creation, and from that point forward, again and forevermore, time will exist. <clears throat> the days that we spend in the New Jerusalem will give way to months, to years, to ages, to millennia, future millennia, to eons, and is stated this way, into the eons of the eons. So time will probably never cease. It'll just go on and on and on and on. And um, that's something else to think about, isn't it? Here's another possibility, a way of thinking at it about the same question a little differently. Oh, by the way, you have the uh, Revelation 22. Remember, the tree of life bears fruit uh, every, every month, right? So there has to be some way to mark time off in the New Jerusalem. But the statement in verse 5 of chapter 21, He who sits on the throne said, I am making all things new. That's the present tense. I am making all things new. In other words, there's a constant renewal. <clears throat> There's a constant renewal that's going on. So um, I think we showed this graphic last time. It's from Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. By the way, there's, and I recommend this book to you. I, I, I bought it during seminary, and I didn't have time to read it until afterwards, and I wish I <laughs> But frankly, if we're going there, folks, we should be a little educated about this, don't you think? And he, he deals, well, he's pretty close to the, um, he's very close to, 
the, the, the doctrine that's taught at Master's Seminary. And, uh, but he, in the latter part of the book, he gets into some speculation um, that I think uh, is worth consideration. But he talks about the quality of life in this, in this world. We're born and we, we live to the prime in our, you know, the prime of life. And I've, I've kind of forgotten what those years were like, but they were pretty good, as I recall. <laughs> and then your body starts to have aches and pains, and so the, the quality of life deteriorates to the point of death. Instantly, your soul goes to heaven. And, hey, the quality of life is really good, right? But what makes it even better is the resurrection. At the resurrection, it's even better. So does it just go on good, 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 good? No. I think what's being said here in verse 5 is it gets better. There's always a, fre a freshness. There's a, there's a growth. There's increase. There's, there are things to do. There are things to pursue. There's, it's an endless upward trajectory that will go on forever. Well, into the ages of the ages. And so we don't think of eternity as you know, static. It's very dynamic. It's all these ages multiplied by ages, so. Let us pray. Lord, all we can say is thank you for your wonderful and great promises, the plan that you have for your children. It thrills our hearts to see what lies in store for us, and yet all we can do is thank you for Christ our Savior who makes all this possible, in whose name we pray, amen.